Well, today we're going to begin a series focused on the book of Jonah. This is one of the most well-known books of the Bible, but probably well-known for all the wrong reasons. People think that the book of Jonah is about a great fish, but in fact, it is a book about the Lord. It is a book about the nature of God and the goodness of God, the grace and the mercy of God. So one of the reasons we study the book of Jonah is just to be reminded of how great God is. Another reason we want to study the book of Jonah is because it really chronicles the spiritual growth of Jonah. It's a tough, bumpy journey for him. Jonah learns everything the hard way. But Jonah, from the beginning of the book through the end of the book, he's a completely different person. He has matured in his faith. He has matured in his confidence in the Lord. And we can learn by looking at the things that he went through, how we can have the same maturity. And hopefully our maturity won't require a great fish. And so we're going to take these next few weeks and study the book of of Jonah. So it's just 47 verses. That's the entire book as it's laid out in my Bible, just two pages here. Uh, I want us today to read Jonah chapter one. So look with me. It begins by saying the word of the Lord came to Jonah, Jonah, son of Amittai. Now let's just pause there a moment. I want you to see Jonah, son of Amittai. Jonah is a, is a real person. This is a historical account. This is an event that really happened. I know sometimes people struggle with that. How in the world could a fish swallow a man and and, and this man live inside the fish for three days and and be spit back up on dry land? And and, and I understand that that's not something we see every day in our lives. But to be honest, this isn't even one of the top 10 most difficult things to believe in the Bible. I mean, you think about it, this is not as, as, uh, as far flung as often people make it think. Uh, There uh, is an invention today where man has figured out a way for a whole community of people to live under the water for months at a time. We call that a submarine. You ever heard of that? And these nuclear submarines stay underwater for for months and months and months at a time. And they have all the food and, and they're able to breathe and they're able to survive just fine. So think about it. A person... A person created, designed, and built that submarine. If I believe that God could make a person who could make a submarine, then it's not much of a stretch in my mind to believe that God could make a fish that could keep a man alive for three days. I think the best way I've heard this expressed is this. If you believe the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God then you shouldn't really have a hard time believing the rest of it. If if there is a sovereign God who is the creator of the universe, then of course God can do anything that God chooses to do. And this just really isn't, um, isn't even that extraordinary of an event. Now, I know that people need some space on that, and, and this is not a gospel issue. But, but let me say just one more thing. I really have trouble with a Christian, someone who professes to be a child of God, saying that they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Christ died, was dead, was buried, and then came back to life. How could we believe in the resurrection of Christ and then look at the story of Jonah and say that's a bridge too far? 
No, if, if God is God and Jesus is risen, then this is not an unreasonable story at all. So it says in verse 1 again, the word of the Lord came to the son, came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Look at verse 2. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Now, the city of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, were some of the most wicked people that the earth has ever known. And, and what's interesting is that they wrote things down. And we have much of the literature, this is about 750 years before the birth of Christ, we have much of the literature of the people and the civilization of Jonah, we can read, we can see the things that they did. And the people in Nineveh, the people in Assyria, we can see from these documents were actually proud of their cruelty. They were, they were proud that they had figured out ways to torture people and still keep those people alive throughout the entire torture. And they, you know, they, they thought they were skilled at that. They were proud of the fact that they could do that. Let me read to you just one description of the kind of torture uh, that, they, uh, that they brought to people. Uh, it says when, when they would conquer a city, they would skin alive men and women and children spread their skins over the city walls. And then they would bury these people, still alive, still alive, bury them up to their heads in the sand, pull out their tongues and stake them to the ground. Now, there's, uh, there's something else they did, but it's just too bad to even read to you. I, I mean, I promise you, you wouldn't want to know. You'd be upset if I read it. These were, these were cruel and wicked people. And so God calls Jonah to go and share the message of the Lord with these, with these terrible, wicked people. Now look at verse 3. It says, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, let me give you just a little bit of a geography lesson, and you probably know these things, but Joppa was a coastal city there on the Mediterranean in Israel, probably not far from where uh, Jonah started at the beginning of this, uh, of this historic account. And so he goes to Joppa. He has been told to go to Nineveh. Now, where is Nineveh? Nineveh would be right outside the modern city of Mosul in North Iraq. And so you've heard of that city on the news. You know where that is. You know that it's nowhere near the Mediterranean Sea. You can't get there from a boat. But uh, we, uh, we see Jonah. He goes to Joppa. And, and it's hard to see on this map, but, I, but I, I've provided this because I just want you to see just how, how big this area is. So do you see a little red dot? Do you know where the nation of Israel is today? Same place. There's a red dot right there. That's Joppa. And so you know where Iraq is, and you can't see it here on the map, but that's where he's been told to go. So, so that is east of there. So where does he go, or where does he try to go? He gets on a boat that's headed for Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is uh, on the coast of what we call Spain today. And it's not even on the Mediterranean coast of Spain. It is on the Atlantic coast of Spain. 
So you would have to sail the entire length of the Mediterranean. You'd have to go out into the Atlantic, turn right, and go up to Tarshish. That was about as far away as a person could go. In fact, they didn't really know of a place further than Tarshish. This was literally to the ends of the earth, so far as he knew. God said go one direction. He has chosen to go a completely different direction. That's, that's the direction. That's the intent of Jonah. Now, I want you to notice one more thing here in verse 3 before we, before we continue on. It says when he got to, to Joppa, uh, there, was a, there was a boat. There was a boat ready to go. Isn't that a coincidence? Isn't that interesting? He got there. He wanted to flee as far away from the Lord as he could get, as far away from the assignment as he could get. And sure enough, there's a boat ready to go. It's got a seat. They're, they're taking uh, passengers. And ho- so he gets on that boat. We'll, we'll come back to that. Look at verse four. It says, but the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. Now, One of the interesting things about running from the Lord is no matter where you run, God's already there, right? And so Jonah's discovered that no matter what direction the ship goes, it runs smack into God. Verse 5 says, the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. Now, I've always wondered about that. How, how come Joseph, how did he decide that he would, instead of, uh, you know, panicking with everybody else, that he would go to the bottom of the boat? And how could Jonah have gone to sleep in the bottom of the boat when the storm is raging? But listen, church, you've seen this. When someone runs from the Lord, they're running from the source of wisdom They're running from the only wisdom that can give us guidance in this life. When you run from the Lord, when you run from wisdom, your IQ drops quickly, right? Have you ever ever seen somebody in their life and they're doing such crazy things, they're doing, making such poor decisions and you wonder why would they self-destruct like that? Well, it's because they're running away from the Lord and they don't even see it. They're making bad decisions because they have no wisdom. And then you see him asleep in the bottom of the boat. How could he do that? Well, you've seen that. You've seen some people living in such denial about how their life is falling apart. And you wonder, why don't those people wake up? Why don't they do something about it? Well, that's a consequence of running away from the Lord. And you could do that. And I could do that. If we run from wisdom, this is the kind of thing that happens. Well, let's continue to read. Verse 6 says, The captain approached him and said, "Uh, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on. Verse 7, The sailors said to each other, Let's cast lots. And then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. And so they cast lots. They drew straws, something. It says, and the lot singled out Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble that we're in. What is your business? Where are you from? And what is your country? And what people are you from? And he answered them, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men who were... The men were seized by a great fear and said to him, "Uh, what is this that you've done? And the men knew that he was fleeing the Lord's presence because he had told them. 
And so they said to him, what should we do so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse, worse. I think sometimes we imagine these people sitting in a conference room and having a discussion about this. But you've got to understand, they're on the deck of this boat. They're out in the middle of the sea. They can't see land. The wind is blowing. They can hardly hear. They're holding on to things. They're having this conversation. And so Jonah says, it's all because of me. It's all because of me. Verse 12, it says, he answered them, uh, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. Verse 14, so they called out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. And then they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish. This is the part of the story everybody knows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Uh, now, I, I, I try to imagine these things when I read them and uh, I don't think this probably happened just like it happened in the cartoons. Have you seen the VeggieTales cartoon for Jonah? That's where I've gotten most of my theological training, VeggieTales. <laughs> VeggieTales is good. But I think they get this one point wrong. So they show, show Jonah being thrown into the sea and then he, he, he goes down and down and down and he's deep in the water and he can't breathe and then here comes a fish and it gobbles him up and three days and, and then the rest of the story. Now, it could have happened that way, but, but that's not exactly how it is described. And so a little bit of um, just my own imagination, here's, here's how I would like to think it happened. So the, the wind is raging, it's loud, they're holding on, they're fearful that they're going to end up in the water. But they pick up Jonah, they throw him in. As soon as he hits the water, the wind ceases. It's quiet. The waves are calm. And they're just amazed. Can you imagine how you would feel? They're, they're just amazed. God, God obviously brought the storm and now God has calmed the storm. And it says here that they, uh, they prayed and they, uh, they committed to the Lord. They made vows. They offered a sacrifice. So that, that tells me there's a little bit of a period of time. They can't believe this. It's so calm. And then they look over the side of the boat. And there's Jonah just treading in the water. <laughs> And he's looking up, hoping that they would help him. And maybe, just maybe, he, he shouts, throw down a rope, it's over, bring me back on board. And as they're looking at him, as he's crying out for help, then comes this great big fish out of nowhere. The water uh, swells, the fish comes up, eats Jonah, swallows Jonah, down he goes into the story, right? At least from the perspective of, uh, of these sailors, into the story end of the story. So what can we learn from that story? What can we learn from these details uh, that could be life-changing for us? Well, I, I think there's something very valuable and I want to outline it by giving you two points and I'll tell you the points before I really begin that part of the message because this is pretty simple today. Number one, I am Jonah. I want you to see here that Jonah that we are Jonah. We, we, we do the things that Jonah does. We're guilty of the things that Jonah is guilty of. I am Jonah. That'll be point one. And then point two, Jesus is Jonah. That might sound odd. How, 
How could I be Jonah and Jesus be Jonah? How could Jesus be Jonah? Jonah is known for his rebellion, right? Chapter 1, known for his rebellion. Chapter 4, known for his selfishness. How could you say that Jesus is Jonah? Well, he is. He is. So let's, let's take these two pieces. I am Jonah. Jesus is Jonah. And let's see what we can learn from this. First of all, I am Jonah. You know, honestly, church, when I read the book of Jonah, I see myself in every single chapter. In chapter one, I see Jonah's rebellion, and I think about my rebellion and the ways that I've told God no, the ways that I have run from the Lord. I see myself in, in Jonah in chapter one. And then I see myself in Jonah in chapter 2. And chapter 2, we'll see next week, is, is about his repentance. And he's calling out to the Lord and, and asking to be rescued. And he's confessing his sin. And I see myself in Jonah chapter 2. And then Jonah chapter 3 is Jonah's, Jonah's preaching. He, he's, he's being obedient to God and he's preaching. Probably not rightly motivated preaching and serving, but he's doing it. And I see myself in Jonah chapter 3. And then Jonah chapter 4 is the chapter of selfishness. Uh, this is really the, the high point of the book, not the fish and the, and, and, and the whole fish story, but it's, uh, it's, the, it's the story we see, the, the part of the story we see in Jonah chapter 4 is really the focus of the book. And, and Jonah is filled with selfishness there. And when I read Jonah chapter 4, I, I, I see my own selfishness. And then Jonah chapter 5, where, where there's a humble realization of who he is before the Lord. I see myself in that. Now, some of you are thinking, Pastor, there's not a Jonah chapter 5. But there is, sort of. You'll just have to come back and we'll talk about that uh, in, the, in the next few days, in the next few weeks. But we see ourselves, if we'll look closely, we will see ourselves in Jonah. I am Jonah. Now, there's some positive things and some negative things about Jonah here. Uh, first of all, Jonah loved the Lord. I, I believe that Jonah was a man who loved the Lord. He was a prophet of the Lord. He was mostly faithful as a prophet. He, uh, he stood before Jeroboam II. That would have been a very difficult assignment for a prophet. He was faithful to, to preach and to teach the things that God gave to him. He was a famous prophet. It's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 14, some of what he did and some of his uh, uh, notoriety. He was, uh, he was a man who loved the Lord. And, and I know somebody will make the argument that you can't love the Lord if you're not being obedient to the Lord. And they'll, and they'll point to 1 John 5, 3 that says to love the Lord is to obey the Lord. And, and, and I suppose in some sense you are right. Of course that verse is right. Uh, in some absolute sense, we can't love the Lord and disobey the Lord at the same time. But I think in a very practical sense, I, I believe Jonah was a man who, who loved the Lord. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why we can identify with him. He was a man who loved the Lord. He loved the Lord like David. King David loved the Lord. King David, the Bible says, is a man was a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord, yet he was a very flawed man and guilty of terrible sin. I think about Peter, Peter, the, the disciple, the, the leading disciple. Peter loved the Lord, but we've seen even in recent weeks as we've preached that Peter was a man who, who often put his foot in his mouth. He often disagreed with Jesus and sinned. 
but he loved the Lord. I think about the apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, a great godly man. But Paul gives his own testimony in Romans chapter seven. And he says, there are things that I want to do, but I don't do them. And there are things that I don't want to do, but I keep doing them. He says, what a wretched man am I? Who's going to save me from this? Paul struggled with sin, yet he still loved the Lord. Jonah loved the Lord, but he but he was guilty of sin. There wouldn't be a book of Jonah had he not rebelled, right? The whole reason we know who he is is because he rebelled. So there's this good thing, he loved the Lord, but at the same time he is known more for his sin, for his rebellion than he is than he is his love. So here are some things I think we can learn. When we see ourselves, we love the Lord, yet we rebel against the Lord. I think there are three things we learn from that. Number one, rebellion is not relative. Rebellion is not relative. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Very often, we will rebel against the Lord. We will tell the Lord, no, we will sin against the Lord. We will do things we know the Lord has told us not to do. Yet we justify that in our minds by thinking of all the ways that we are faithful to the Lord. Lord, I know that I'm disobedient here, but you've got to notice I am obedient over here. I think that's perhaps what Jonah was doing. He says, I'm not going to go to Nineveh, but I sure have gone to a lot of other places. I'm not going to speak to those wicked people, but I spoke to Jeroboam just like you told me to. I'm not going to do this, but I have done that. And we think that everything's relative that it's okay that I'm disobedient to God in one area as long as I am very obedient to God in some other areas. Now, when we do that, we always choose to be disobedient in the areas that where we want to be disobedient. And we're obedient in the, in the things that we probably would have done anyway, but we justify that. We use that to justify our disobedience. We think it's all relative when it's, when it's not. You know, there are a lot of things in life that are relative. If you ask, is that a big house? Well, is it a big house? What's well, relative? If, if uh, you're comparing it to the, to the huts that families live in in Kenya, then every single house in Nacogdoches is a big house. But, but if you compared it to some, some great mansion somewhere, then maybe every single house in Nacogdoches is a small house. It's just relative, right? If you ask, is this coffee hot? Well, it's, it's, it's hotter than ice water. But it's not near as hot as molten lava. It's, it's all relative. If you ask, is the kitchen clean? Well, if you ask the mama, <laughs> no. And if you ask the daddy, yes. You know, it's all relative, right? But when it comes to rebellion, it's not relative. It's not relative. We cannot justify our sin by the things that we do that make us feel better about our, about our sin. I read one commentator this week that explained it. He used a sentence. I thought, this is, I can't say it any better than this. I'll just use his sentence. He said, you're never further from God than when you are close to him and you say no. See, I I think that's why it's so easy to see ourselves here in Jonah's shoes Because a lot of us are close to God, yet we're far from God because even in our closeness to him, we say no. 
There's something that God has called us to do. There's something in our lives that, that, that's just a shining example of disobedience. And, and we know we ought to change. We know we ought to talk to the Lord about that. We know we ought to go in a different direction. We know we need to make a commitment, a sacrifice, a change. But we, we justify our disobedience by saying, if you look at it from a relative point of view, it's not so bad. But rebellion is never relative. The second thing I think we see here when we say I am Jonah is that convenience is not permission. Convenience is not permission. If you look back at verse 3, and I pointed this out as we read through the passage, Jonah, he's, he's obviously looking to get away from God and to get as far away from Nineveh as he can. So he goes down, he's looking for a boat, he gets to Joppa, and sure enough, there's a boat and it's headed to it's headed to Tarshish. It's headed in the complete different direction. It's going to go as far away as it can go. What a coincidence. And so here's what I'm just imagining went through Jonah's mind. And, and I think this went through his mind because this has gone through my mind. And I think this is going through uh, Jonah's mind because I've heard people say this over and over and over. Here's what Jonah most likely thought. Well, look, there's a boat headed to Tarshish. It's ready to go. They got a seat for me. They're inviting me on. It looks like God has just lined everything up. It's just perfect. Obviously, this is what the Lord wants me to do. Have you ever said that? So many times we think convenience means that's what God wants us to do. I've heard it a lot of different ways. I've heard people say, you know, I'm unhappy with my job. I, uh, I've got some bad relationships with people at work. I don't know what to do. But then all of a sudden, this job offer came out of the blue, and it's just right there before me. So obviously, that's what God wants me to do. I think I'll take that job and flee from the problems that I have at the job I'm in now. And so we've made a decision, not, not based on Scripture, not even based on the leading of the Lord, maybe not even based on prayer and seeking the advice of wise people. We've made a decision based on convenience. I've heard people say this, Pastor, I was miserable in my marriage. You have no idea what, what has gone on at my house. I am miserable in my marriage, but I know that God wants me to be happy. Pastor, does God want me to be miserable? Surely God doesn't want me to be miserable. And I was at work one day, and, and there was this man there, or there was this woman there, and you know, he or she was going through some of the same things I was going through, and and you know, pastor, God doesn't want me to be miserable. And everything just, it was just the perfect situation, pastor. I know that God was in that. No, what you know is that it was convenient. But convenience is not permission. You hear people say, I, I know the right thing, what the right thing to do is. Buy a house, change jobs, marry a person, start a relationship, quit school, start school. I know that this is the right thing to do because all the circumstances have lined up. I mean, the doors have opened at the right time. It's an easy path to go down. I'm, I believe that's how Jonah uh, justified his sin. It, just, it was just easy. It was, just, it was right there. It was something that would have been easy for him to do. But listen, if you're running from God, there will always be a ship headed to Tarshish. You know, the devil excels at making sin easy. 
Don't make decision based on convenience. Don't make a decision because it just seems like everything's lined up or a door has opened or there's an incredible opportunity or, or that person seems to have the same problem I have. Convenience is not permission. I see myself in Jonah because there have been times when I've let convenience give me permission to sin. And then there's a third thing right here in this, um, in this whole idea that I am Jonah. Honesty is not repentance. If you look at verse 8, well, 8 and 9 and 10, you see Jonah's honesty. You see that, that they asked Jonah, you know, what's going on? The, we drew straws. Everything points to you. You tell us. And, and the Bible says that Jonah told him, I'm a Hebrew. I, I worship the one true living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Uh, I, I've been told by God to go here. I didn't want to go there. So I decided I would go somewhere else. And so I'm headed in a different direction. And that's why God has brought this judgment. And so he was honest. Is it good to be honest? Absolutely. It's good to be honest. And, and, and when we're honest about our sin, we're honest to ourselves, honest to God, honest to the people around us about our sin is very refreshing. It's very refreshing. Have you ever, have you ever been in that uh, situation where maybe you have just, you have just hidden sin and hidden sin and you've just tapped it down and covered it over and it just was creating all kinds of mental anguish and problems and guilt. And then finally you you admitted it to yourself or you admitted it to God or you admitted it to another person and, and just, just how refreshing it is to finally say it, to come clean, to say it. I, I've, I've seen this in, in counseling sessions where somebody will confess that, you know, I've had a bad attitude for a lot of years. I've been angry. I've been bitter. I've been looking at porn. There, there are financial secrets and, and they'll finally just come clean and, and they put it all out there and it's refreshing. The reason it's refreshing is because now there's hope for change. But here's what happens so many times. We stop with honesty and we don't go any further. Honesty is not repentance. Repentance is repentance. Honesty may be the first step to repentance, but it's not the last step to repentance. We need to be honest about our sin. We need to tell the Lord about our sin. We need to tell some other people about our sin, but then we need to make a change. With the help of the Lord, we need to make a change about our sin. Honesty isn't enough. And the Bible says that. I think about Joel chapter two, verse 13. Uh, the prophet Joel said for the Lord, to the Israelites who were guilty of sin, he said, rend your hearts, not your garments. What does that mean? Rend, just fancy word for tear. In those days, if they felt guilty of sin, they would tear their shirt just to show that I hate my sin and I am humble before the Lord and I'm, I'm not worthy to stand before the Lord. So they would rip their garments. And so that's good. That was, that was an expression of their honesty but it stopped there. And so God says through Joel, quit ripping your garments. Quit just being honest. Make a change in your heart. Rend not your garments, but rend your heart. Make a change. It says the same thing in Proverbs 28, 13. It says, the one who conceals his sin will not prosper. Okay, that's all about honesty. Don't conceal your sin. Be honest. Be honest with yourself, the Lord, and others. But it goes on. The one who conceals a sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces his sin 
That's the person who will find mercy. Too many times we're like Jonah and our confession starts well, honesty, but it stops before we ever get to a real change, real change. The Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians 7 that there are two kinds of sorrow. When we're sorry for our sin, you've heard people say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for, you know, that I got caught or I'm sorry that I sinned, I'm sorry, people... People are good at saying they're sorry. So the Bible says there's two kinds of sorrow. There's one kind of sorrow that leads to death, it says. It's just you're saying you're sorry, and, and, and you know, perhaps that's a moment of honesty. You are, you are sorry, at least that you got caught. You, you have sorrow, but, but that's a kind of sorrow that just leads to death. It leads you away from the Lord. But he says there's another kind of sorrow. It's the sorrow that leads you to the Lord. It's the sorrow that leads to change. So we've got to understand that, that rebellion is not relative. We've got to understand that convenience is not permission. But we also have to understand that honesty is not repentance. We have to change. We have to go to the Lord and say, not just I was wrong, but I want to be different in the days to come. And so we can see ourselves right here in the person of Jonah. You know, you know there are two ways to learn anything. You can learn from your own mistakes and your own sin, or you can learn from the sin and the mistakes of others. And so here, as we see ourselves in Jonah, and, and this will be repeated throughout the book, we have a choice. Do we learn from our mistakes, the school of hard knocks? Do we learn from our own fish? Do we learn from our own storms? Or will we learn the lessons from the storms and the choices that, that Jonah made. So I am Jonah. But I want to share with you the other part because this, this is exciting. Not only I am Jonah, but Jesus is Jonah. Now doesn't that sound odd? Jesus is Jonah. How could Jesus be Jonah? Jonah was uh, he, was, he was rebellious. He was disobedient. He was selfish. His motives are messed up through the entire book of Jonah. Even when he does something right, he does it for the wrong reasons. How could we say Jesus is Jonah? Well, I, I, I read a sermon this week and I copied it. Somebody else said Jesus is Jonah. You know who I copied? Jesus, okay? You know, pastors shouldn't copy messages, but you can copy them from Jesus, so here's what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 39, he said, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Now, isn't it amazing? Jesus is the one who draws this comparison between Jonah and himself and Jesus. In fact, Jesus says Jonah is an illustration. The word the scripture uses, he says it's a sign. He is a picture. The theological word is a type. He is a type of Jesus. He said, if you look at Jonah, you're going to learn some things about, about me. So that's, that's helpful. Now I should say that 99% of everything I've ever heard somebody say about that passage in Matthew chapter 12 has been, um, has been worthless. 
Most of the time when people talk about that passage, they just want to count the days. They're three days and three nights, and they want to use this to argue. Uh, perhaps Jesus didn't die on a Thursday. Maybe he died on a Wednesday. Or maybe Easter shouldn't be celebrated on Sunday. Maybe it should be celebrated on Monday. And people fuss, and they fight, and, and, and they're just all kind of things. And they miss the point of the passage. So, so let me just address that. Uh, the, Jesus died on Thursday. Easter's supposed to be on Sunday. And, and, and there are there are good scholarly reasons to believe that that is the case. And I don't have time to go over that right now. Uh, but maybe in the pastor's show this week, if you get online and watch our weekly pastor's show, maybe we'll, maybe we'll dig into that a little bit. But here's the other thing. That's not the point of the passage. It's not for us to count days and try to figure days of the week and this and that. The point of the passage is that when we look to Jonah, if we'll focus on Jonah, if we'll meditate about Jonah, and, and especially Jonah chapter one, we can learn some things about Jesus. In fact, I would encourage you. We, we talk often about meditating on scripture. This would be a good place to do this. Go home, read Jonah chapter one, and with pencil and paper, begin prayerfully to think about all the ways that Jonah teaches us something about Jesus. So I want to give you four or five right now. I'll go through these pretty quickly. I'm sure you can come up with more than this, but here are the first five that, that I, was, uh, I was able to find. First, Jonah was sent to confront the sin of Nineveh. What about Jesus? So what was Jonah's mission? Well, God sent Jonah, verse two, chapter one, verse two, God sent Jonah to go and deal with the sin of the Ninevites. That was his mission. God said, go, the Ninevites are guilty. Go, talk to them about their sin. What was Jesus's mission? Jesus came to deal with the sin of the whole world. I think it's interesting that when Jonah was sent to deal uh, with the Ninevites, God, God could have chosen all different kinds of people to send, to send Jonah to, but God says, I want to send you to the worst of the worst of the worst. Because it's a picture of Jesus coming to bear, to address the sin of the worst of the worst of the worst. That's what Jesus came to do. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. So that's, that's number one. Jonah was sent to confront the sin of the Ninevites. And that's a picture of what Jesus, Jesus was sent to do. Secondly, Jonah was the bearer of sin. Jonah was the bearer of sin. Why did the storm come to the ship and to the sailors? Why were they experiencing the storm? Well, because Jonah was there. And because Jonah came with sin. Jonah was bearing sin. Now, the thing about Jonah is he was the bearer of his own sin, right? He brought his own sin in. Well, what about Jesus? Did Jesus bear sin? Well, he died. He did. And that's the language. In fact, the Bible uses in Isaiah 53, 12, that, that he bore our sin. But Jesus, as the verse says, he didn't bear his own sin. He bore our sin. One of my favorite verses, and I, I talk about it often, is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And one of the reasons why I talk about it so often is because I want everybody to have the same mental picture. I, I want everybody to understand this, uh, the truth of this verse. It says, God made him who had no sin. Who's the one who had no sin? God made him who had no sin. That's Jesus, right? God took Jesus. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin 
So God took my sin, your sin, the sin of the whole world, the sin of the Ninevites, the sin of everybody, and put it upon Jesus. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, the Bible says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took my sin, put it on Jesus. Jesus bore my sin on the cross. God took the righteousness of Jesus, the right standing Jesus had with God, the purity, the holiness, the sinless life of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, and he clothed me in that righteousness. If you were to ask God today, if you could go to heaven and say, God, show me your righteousness, God would point to me. Right? I mean, I know my life, my wife wants to laugh at that. You know, you're not the righteousness of anything. And you know what? I'm not the way she knows me. But when God looks at me, he's, he sees the righteousness of himself because I've been clothed in the righteousness of God. Jesus came to bear our sins just as Jonah bore his own sins. The, the third thing, the judgment of Jonah was the only hope of survival. The only hope that these sailors had in this boat was, was that Jonah would be, would be punished, that Jonah would be thrown into the sea. In fact, they tried everything else. It's interesting, if you read back in verses 4 and 5, the first thing they did is they, they prayed to their pagan gods. They, just, they didn't know what else to do, so they just started reaching out. And, and, then, and then when that didn't work, the second thing they did, what does it say? They began to lighten the load of the ship. They began to throw stuff overboard. And they thought, well, maybe if we get the ship a little lighter, it won't sink. But that didn't work. And so then, and I think this is funny, they began to row to shore. Now, this is a big ship. And they're out in the, in, not in the ocean, in the Mediterranean Sea, but it's pretty, pretty big still. And so they're out in the middle of the water and they're trying, in, in, in the midst of the worst storm they've ever seen, they're trying to row the boat ashore. It was, it was futile. Their only hope they had was the judgment of Jonah. And the only hope we have, the only hope we have of overcoming our sin is the judgment of Jesus on the cross. Now people still try things just like those sailors tried things. We, we call out to, to the gods of this world. Now, we're not praying to Zeus or, or to Diana or, or some, some pagan god like they may have prayed, but, but, but we're reaching out to the world. We're reaching out to technology and science and, and, and advisors and, 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 and all kinds of television shows, and we're trying to find the answer. We're trying to find hope, but, but in none of those places will we find the solution to sin. And then we try to lighten the load. We try to clean out our lives, to get some sin out of our lives. I hear people say, I'm going to do better. I'm, going to, I'm, I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm going to live a cleaner life. But you can't get enough sin out of your life to ever merit the favor of God. And, and, and then we just try hard. You know, we row the boat ashore. We, we, we invest ourselves into serving other people and sacrificing and generosity and doing good works and, and, and standing for this cause and that cause. And we think that somehow if we just do enough, we can, we can overcome our sin, but we can't. Our only hope is the judgment of Jesus. Throw him in the water, nail him to the cross. That's the only hope that we have. And so then the next thing I want you to, I want you to see is uh, that the judgment of Jonah was by the hands of, of others. I always wondered this, and just until this week, in fact, if, if Jonah knew that the only hope they had was for him to go in the water and drown, 
And he was willing to do it. I mean, there seems to be a willingness on Jonah's part to go. That probably says something about the Lord. So why didn't Jonah just jump in the water? Why didn't Jonah just jump in? You know, take care of this. He's seeing they're rowing the boat. They're, he could have just solved this. Why didn't he jump in the water? Well, because God in his providence, he was, he was going to use Jonah as a picture, as an illustration of Jesus. Now, Jesus died, but he died at the hands of sinners. Jesus didn't come and commit suicide. Jesus was killed. And that had to be that way. And so God so arranged it. I love how the Bible fits together. God so arranged it that Jonah didn't jump into the water. He was thrown into the water. And I believe that's a picture of Jesus dying at the hands of others. And then the final thing is this. Jonah seemed lost in the belly of the fish for three days. When they threw Jonah in the water and they watched him, and this is why I think it happened on the surface of the water and not in the deep, uh, because these men had to see this. They saw Jonah swallowed by this great fish. Now, what would they have thought then? They would have thought it's over, right? There's no hope. Nobody's going to survive that. That's the end of the story of Jonah. We'll tell this story to our grandkids, but nobody will ever hear from Jonah again. It is over. But it wasn't, right? It wasn't. We're going to see in the next chapter. If you don't know the end of the story, it wasn't. Jonah, Jonah is spit back up on land. He becomes obedient to God. There's a great revival in Jonah's life and the life of the Ninevites. It was not over. When Jesus died on the cross, even his most sincere followers thought it was over. They put him in the tomb. They thought nobody will ever hear from him again. Easter morning, nobody was looking for the resurrected Savior. Easter morning, nobody was waiting in anticipation. It was over. But it wasn't, right? And Jesus comes out of the grave and, and, and then guarantees us eternal life, guarantees us hope and, and, and forgiveness and, and, and life and glory. It's not over. And so what we learn from this is though, is though sometimes we're like Jonah and sometimes our lives can completely fall apart. It's not over if we're with Jesus. It's not over because Jesus was resurrected. And this is a picture of that, of that resurrection. I want to read one more verse to you. I read Matthew 12, 39 and 40. That's when Jesus said that, you know, Jonah is a, is a picture of, uh, of who I am and, and we learn things. But it's, it's the next verse that I think is so interesting. Verse 41, Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Where are the Ninevites today? The Ninevites are with the Lord. Because Jonah preached and they repented and God rescued them. And one day in judgment, the Ninevites will either stand against us or they will stand with us. Do you understand? The Ninevites will either stand and say, we repented at the message of Jonah. You have the message of Jesus. 
We didn't know about the forgiveness of Jesus. We didn't know how much God loved us. We didn't know the sacrifice that God would make so that we could be children of God. We didn't know any of that, yet we repented. Now, why can't you repent? That's the message of Jonah chapter one. That's the message of the whole book. These men, these women will either stand against us at judgment or they will embrace us at judgment because we have heard the message of Christ. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed. I, I, I want to challenge you today to respond to the message of Christ. I mean, too many times, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, I, I'll hear a message, I, I'll be confronted in God's word. And I will be honest with the Lord. I think I'm really good at being honest with the Lord. I, I say, Lord, I'm, that's a problem. That's something that needs to change. Lord, I, I, I need to repent. I can be honest with the Lord. And, and listen, if you're here today, it's probably because you're really good at being honest with the Lord. But I learned from Jonah that it doesn't stop with honesty. That's the first step. But we've got to respond. We've got to change. We've We've got to walk with the Lord today. Whether God has challenged you in the area of sin or God has, God has called you to embrace the, the, the good news of, of Jesus that he has died for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't just be honest. You respond. You come down. Talk to somebody here. Pray here at the front. And let's let the Lord have his way in our hearts. Father, this is your time. We're your people. May we respond in a way that matters. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.